I got into the arts because I didn't want to go into business. I, I, I do not have a mind for business. Don't get me wrong. I'm an excellent salesperson. Like I can sell the shit out of somebody's stuff. But when it comes to like my artwork that I'm somehow personally attached to and invested in, I can't sell that stuff to save my life. Well, in reality, I find that when you're an artist, you really have to be a business person as well. Unless you have a partner who takes care of business and does your accounts and all that and says, hey, you got to stop buying glass, you know, you got, <laughs> you got to sell first or whatever. You know, the, the time where you as artists can be in your ivory tower and just focus on your art and, you know, pretend that you're kind of outside of society looking in, that's really hard to do, you know, unless you have some kind of a dowry or something, which I don't, you know. So building a career as an art is a challenge. And that's that's being kind about it. Well, and not only that, it keeps changing. Because yes. like the, you know, when I was coming out of school 20 some odd years ago, like building a career was one thing. And then now with the internet and social media and all this, like I'll even say the upgrade of the able to have things delivered. So like the price and expanse of shipping networks that have, has gotten much, much better, faster and cheaper than it was ever was in the past has also changed the market because in the old days, like you, you did your work and you maybe went like a couple hundred kilometers or a couple hundred miles away from your home. But now you can literally like be shipping stuff all over the world. Right. Yeah. Which I do actually, I would almost say since COVID prices have gone up and through the roof, I mean, you, you pay literally triple to four times for shipping than what you would pay before. You know, it's incredible. Super expensive. Huh. I didn't know that. Yeah. That explains a lot, though. Well, you know, how everybody is saying, you know, we can't get our deliveries in time. Uh, I've had exactly the same thing. You know, you, you send stuff and it has to be there at a certain time. And it turns out that it's somewhere hanging and, you know, just there's not a truck available to pick it up and take it to the gallery. That's a problem. <sighs> yeah, yeah. I, I, it's funny because we always do. I keep joking with my wife. It's like, we, I can't wait till things get back to normal. And it's like, it's never going to be normal again. It's going to be a new normal yes. after all this is done. Yeah, I think we're going to have a pro-COVID and a past-COVID. Hopefully a past-COVID, you know, because it is annoying and people are dying and all of that. But it's it's kind of controlling our life. And uh, and I feel like I'm put, having to put so many things on hold that I would do because of whatever. I either uh, the unknown of the future, like the you know, just like in the past, I could say like, okay, I know I'm going to have these salaries and these jobs and these sales and whatever kind of things, and I could sort of rely on that. But like at this moment, for and for this you know past year and a half, it's been like I don't know if I can rely on that future income and stability and things like this because you know companies go out of business, people lose jobs, people get sick, whatever. Like there's so much more anxiety about the potential problems of the future at this point, like the unknowns. Very true. But at the same time, you know, we are supposed to be creative. We're artists. So there's two things. There's two. There's three, really. Uh, one is work day by day and try to do your best day by day. You know, the second thing is, yes, we are artists. We are creative. We have to keep that flow of creativity and use it also maybe in ways that we normally wouldn't necessarily need to. And the third thing is, and this is one that, that I feel strong in, is that we have to trust the universe to some extent. We have to trust that what we're doing is valuable enough 
that the universe will give us some guidance and that help is there. It's just we have to reach out for it. Are you religious? No, I'm spiritual, not religious. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Okay. My father's a priest, so I'm always interested. <laughs> well, I'm not holding that against you. <laughs> Please don't. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I'm not religious. And I'm probably not spiritual, but I could be pretty easily, I think. Well, spirituality for me is very down to earth. It's not about meditating two hours a day or anything like that. Spirituality for me is more how you look at life, how you look at fellow human beings, at animals, at our planet, at the universe, you know, and how you just try to live a decent and honest life, you know, and whether it's in your artwork or in your friendships or all adds up and all adds in, if you know what I mean. Oh, I do. Yeah, and I burned a lot of bridges, and I was a complete arrogant little shit in my childhood, so I'm hoping I'm better at it now. <laughs> well, you, you, you touched a very important point, you know, because sometimes artists ask, or parents of artists ask, you know, how do you make a living of your artwork? You know, how do you build a career? And and the, the thing really is that we are our own worst enemy, you know, and a little bit of arrogance is needed because, you know, nobody is asking for us. We are the ones trying to put something into this world that we then want people to be convinced that they need it, you know? It is a little bit of salesmanship and a little bit of sort of like self-confidence yes. in that way. Like you have to believe that you, what you feel the need to make is something that the world needs or else it's kind of not worth making. I, I totally agree with you on that. That That is very much the guideline, but at the same time, you're also your own biggest critic. It's, it's funny, my, my partner, Janet, some, sometimes says to me, you are successful why are you still insecure and insecurity is basically because you want to be your best so if you don't question your action if you don't question what you do how can you be your best you know it's a interesting balance to me because like i said we are our own worst enemy we are, but I mean, but it's that anxiety and that nervousness and whatever words you put to it that is the thing that drives us to do better, more, bigger, whatever, or even just continuing to produce. Exactly. Because I know a lot of people that are incredibly talented who have stopped producing for whatever reason. So just the tenacity to even continue, especially like when the sales aren't coming in and the, and people aren't liking what you're doing, but you got, you know, that if you just get past this, you'll find something that people will engage with better. And, and so it, it takes a lot of faith in yourself to continue. Sometimes you have to go against all odds and you have to be willing to put everything in and take the chance that you might lose, but my experience, every time that I did that, when people were saying, oh, I'm not making anything because I don't have money, there are no sales, you know, or I'm not doing this book, I'm going to do it maybe in two years or three years when things start to flow again. I do the opposite. I'm quite willing to spend my last savings on a body of work and doing a book and then just put that out there and convince people that it's worthy of being purchased and being followed and being appreciated. And so far, that's been quite successful, actually. It's very un-European, though. I feel like a European 
art is very humble and just sort of like this is what I do and they present like you're talking in a very American capitalistic kind of I'm a business kind of a style of getting it out there being the salesperson you know being a sort of I apologize if this sounds bad but like being a show pony and being like hi there you know this is me and this is my art please you know be interested in buying it which is great and like to a certain extent, I feel like the European humbleness, I think maybe has gone a little too far in their humbleness and, and the American capitalistic has maybe gone a little bit too much in that. And I would love to find some balance in the middle there because I don't think either of them are necessarily the best models. Well, I tell you what, I, I find myself in the middle and maybe I sound to you very confident, but I really had to learn to let go of some of that European shyness and that almost passively waiting to be accepted and to be appreciated, actually being daring to say, hey, what do you think of my work? You know, actually talk to people. I mean, if you go to a, a European art fair in general, you know, the artist stands around and if, if somebody makes very visible that they're actually interested, then maybe he or she will go to, to that person and talk to them. But what I see in America is the absolute opposite, where people jump on the person that walks into the booth or whatever, the gallery, and they just jump on them. And that doesn't work either. I think you have to find this kind of sensitivity to now I can be more aggressive, if you like, and now I just have to be quiet and patient and wait and see what, you know, what the response is. But being too shy really isn't helpful. I often say, you know, I wish I could stay home and they just look at my work and they purchase it and I don't have to show up. But on the other hand, part of my success has been that I have shown up and that galleries know that I will show up, that I will actually jump in a plane and fly over to America to meet with a client or a collector or, you know. And by doing that, by showing up, you build relationships. Relationships really have helped me tremendously in my career. You go beyond just showing the work and saying, hey, this is, this is, this is it. This is me. You know, you get into conversations where people ask you about your belief system, you know, your, you know, philosophical ideas, your political ideas sometimes, not so much in America, but you know, so there's, there's a, there's a lot of uh, stuff that you can discuss. To give you an example, I had a, a big collector, a known collector, you know, good collector, good collection too. And a gentleman saw a piece of mine. He really liked it. He really, he said, you know, I would love to have it, but I have no clue where to put it. And I said to him, well, if you really love it enough, you'll find a place to put it. And you know what? I'll fly out to Montreal to help you find a place to put it. And the gentleman was so pleased and excited about that. He actually said, okay, I'm buying it. You come over to Montreal and we'll we'll have a fun time. We did exactly that. We had a great time together. And that's something that like a lot of artists don't think about. I mean, don't get me wrong. What you just said is incredibly like high level artists and most artists are not at that level. But when people collect work, they're not just collecting the art. They're collecting the story behind right. the art. They're collecting the story, not just like, because like a lot of artists think like, oh, I put all my meaning and my idea in the work. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but that's not what people are buying. People are buying the story of the experience of buying it, of talking with the artist, of having dinner with the artist all this kind of stuff because like I think back to my own little art collection and my parents little art collection and and there are certain 
works that I'm more, I have a stronger affinity towards because I was there and we met the artist and there's this great story and it was raining that day and, yeah. you know, whatever, like great thing to create this, this memory of the entire experience. And that's usually what people are buying, not pretty objects. Right. I, I totally agree with you. The experience, I would almost say, is becoming more important, especially you say you're, I'm at a higher level. Well, price level Yes, I'm at a higher level. Okay, but what I notice is that many of the collectors, many of the, let's put it this way, many of the wealthy collectors can buy whatever the heck they want, you know, and they see plenty that is attractive enough that they are interesting enough that they want to have it. But what makes a difference is what's the experience that comes with it? And sometimes the gallery can provide that experience, and sometimes the gallery will ask the, the artist to be part of that experience. And sometimes the artist can just do that, you know. And it's it's really, when you think about it, it's a really interesting part of the whole, of being an artist and showing your work and connecting with your public. That's really what you do. You're connecting with your, with your audience, if you like. And by making that connection unique or special, there is an, an appreciation for that extra effort. And that, that too, to some extent, is what you sometimes need to do when everybody is trying to just survive. You need to take that little extra investment that will bring you there. Uh, agreed. When you're selling work that's $3,000, there's not enough money in it that you can jump on a plane to go to Canada, you know, but... You're not at that level. No, okay, I'm 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 at a higher level, but it's still it comes Well, you're you're at a higher price point, we should say. I'm at a higher price point, but it still comes out of my profit. Yeah. You know, so you're still investing. I mean, if I sell uh, a piece that pays me $24,000, uh, if I then have to pay 2,000 to fly over to Canada and spend a couple of days in a hotel and all that, you could say, "Wow, that's almost 10%." That sounds like a lot to offer. You know, but at the same time, like I said, it's about building relationships. I would take a wager that that person that you flew all the way out to Canada for has bought more than that one piece since then. I'm still waiting for him to buy the next piece. The, the thing is, the relationship itself is something that doesn't go unnoticed because he's part of a group of collectors. They all know each other. They talk. He'll say to them, oh, Peter Brammers came out to see me to install this piece. And we had such a great time. You know, these things are valuable. Indeed. I, I want to go back a little bit, though. Yeah. So like, I'm always interested in how artists get created in the first place. So way back when, your childhood. So like, were your parents creative? Did you have good teachers? Like what even got you into working in the arts in the first place? Well, I know pe there are people who get a calling later in life uh, to be an artist. For me, I've always wanted to be some form of an artist. That included being an actor. That was probably at the age of 11. Being a chef, that was at the age of 14. Being an interior designer, interior architect, that was 17. 
And then at 19, going to art school, initially going actually to to study interior design. And then within six weeks, I, I realized that I'm way too obnoxious to just do interior design, that I would be much happier being a sculptor. So I studied sculpture, but I was kicked out of that university after four years. So I never finished my education. I want to hear that story. <laughs> well, the the... The fun thing is that seven years later, they asked me if I wanted to be a tutor at the same institute. So what shall I say? I'm an obnoxious person in the sense that I'm not necessarily rude or anything like that, but I have a kind of an idea about what I want. And I'm willing to compromise within a certain scale of creative possibilities, if you like. Okay? But... When I feel that something is just not working for me, then I can be kind of stubborn. And in this case, I had one teacher who was really, really wonderful guy who made kinetic and cybernetic sculptures in steel. Brilliant man, made brilliant work, and he had very specific ideas about what being an artist means, but also, for instance, about material. And he had a material philosophy that till this day, I find extremely important and helpful. And that gentleman actually was the one who said to me, you don't belong in this institute. You're not an institute guy. You need to go your own way. And he literally helped to get me kicked out of school. (laughs) I'm not sure we're using the term kicked out of school the same way because like I got literally kicked out of school. They like took my enrollment away. I got kicked out of a city and a county. Like I literally was told not to come back. Well, maybe you're more obnoxious than I am. Mine was because I threw such an amazing party that many illegal things happened. (laughs) And uh, they, and they, they ended up saying it was all my fault for throwing this amazing party. So. At least you went out with a bang. <laughs> you know, I have no regrets about it. It was a good time. Exactly, exactly. Well, in, in my case, it wasn't that uh, dramatic at all. You know, first they let me double a year, and then at the end of the second time that I did that year, they said, basically, you know, your grades are not good enough. But th- the funny thing was that this specific professor was the one who gave me a note that was bad enough that they wanted to get rid of me. So it was grade related. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Mine was like an, a, a, a rebellious act that caused mine. Right, right. No, there were a lot of rebellious acts, but they could never prove that it was on in my on on my behalf or in my time. You know. So. Yeah. Oh yeah, I know all about those too. I almost I almost didn't graduate high school twice because my principal and I did not get along at all and he tried to get me expelled twice he he accused me of being a drug dealer and I'm like I'm not a drug dealer like what kind of ridiculous bullshit is this I mean don't get me wrong in my arrogance this is how arrogant I was now I was doing drugs (laughs) in high school 
because it was high school. Yeah. And I was doing drugs. But I didn't do them on campus because, well, that's, you know, you're going to get caught for that. So I did off campus. And so the, the principal calls me. He's like, so I hear that you're doing and dealing drugs on school campus. And I just turned to him and I was like, I don't do or deal drugs on school campus. And what I do off of school campus is none of your fucking business. That's a good reply. <laughs> yeah, he didn't take that well no at all. i'm not surprised he take it well that he didn't take it well but you showed bold so that you know there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> it wasn't diplomatic let's do it that way <laughs> you know it was definitely not diplomatic he put me in school suspension for a week so yeah. yeah anyways so but your parents were were they creative or not creative so my father studied piano for seven years and he still couldn't play so that was kind of funny and i wouldn't call him I wouldn't call him creative. He was more the one who was more concerned about how do you make a living. My mom, on the other hand, was a creative one, but was also the one who, who trusted, who said, do what you love to do and you'll work it out. You know, you'll, you'll make it successful because you're doing what you love. Uh, you put your heart in it and you'll, you'll do fine. Just, just follow your path which I think is good advice for a parent, a very trusting. And uh, that really helped me a lot because I can't say that my self-confidence was that big. The, the only thing is I felt very strong. I've always felt very strong about what I did, that it was something that I needed to do. You know, and I was willing not to make any money and just continue anyway. In all honesty, it's still in a way like that because when I go into my studio and I'm working and I get into flow, I'm the happiest guy on the planet. You know, I'm, I'm just happy and I, I don't even stop to eat. You know, I just work and then at some point I start to shake because of my blood sugar is too low. You know what I mean? I do. I get those little speckles in the eye when my blood sugar gets that low. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen those too. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what they're called, but, you know, little little star bright things in the corners. I find them actually very interesting because they move and they move differently than where I move my eyes. Uh -huh. So I sometimes actually spend time kind of just looking at how that evolves in the hope that something really miraculous shows up. Yeah, I believe the next step after that would be blacking out. Yeah. So I don't want to do it too long. No, <laughs> yeah. I agree. But okay, but now, so how many... Like I'm thinking of you because like you have a very long storied career and I mean, I admire it to no end. And I'm just wondering like, so in the beginning, how long did it take, let's say for you before you started, for lack of a better word, become profitable, I guess. Like, so were, like, were you right out of school, just like selling and making a living or did you take a couple years? And then sort of the, and then beyond that, it's sort of like, what was the thing? What was that transition that made it so that suddenly you're like, yes, it's working. When I was the first year at school, we had a commission, same teacher, by the way. And he said, okay, I want you to create something where the inner form basically influences the outer form visually. And I thought that was a very interesting commission. I, I, I liked, you know, the, the challenge. So I created something with a sphere of basically a round globe thing. And I had two shapes on the outside that were made of plexiglass that I heated up till they were deformable. And I just pushed that sphere into there. 
And I showed that to my teacher and he said, well, I guess you, you did what I asked, meaning I guess it's, it's good enough, probably you see or something, you know, but that was about it. And he was like that, you know, but I went home with the thing and I thought, you remember those old big mirror lamps that you could buy these bulbs? They had big, big bulbs. They were like, oh, I think about four inch in diameter. Yeah. So I got one of those. They were like a, a vanity mirror bulb. Yeah, was big, exactly. Was really kind of, yes, exactly. Yeah. So I got one of those and I put that in there. I liked it. You know, I, I made uh, I made a light object. I made a lamp. And one day, not that long afterwards, about three months after, I'm going to get my hair cut. And this guy has this really brilliant shop, you know, looks industrial, very industrial design, you know, typical for the 80s. So I'm sitting there, we're talking about all kinds of stuff. At some point, we're talking about design. And I said to him, well, I made a lamp, I made a light object. I think it would like, actually look good in your in your shop. Anyway, we talk, we talk on and on and on. By the time he was done and I, wanted, I said, you know, how much do I owe you? He said, why don't you go and get that lamp and come and show it to me? That was my first sale, 35 guilders, as much as the haircut cost. It was an expensive haircut, by the way. <laughs> I was like, either the art was cheap or the haircut was expensive. wasn't sure which. Go yeah, ahead. but let me tell you what happened next, because this is you're asking about my career and how it built up. He had a colleague who was more successful than him, also ran a hair shop. And the guy saw my lamp, really liked it and called me and said, I want you to make something for me. And in the following five years, he kept ordering lamps for me, like one every six to 10 months. And he was my first collector, if you like. Just the fact that I had this guy who was willing to buy my work while I was still studying at school, you know, he basically gave me some confidence, but he also gave me the money. like. I would sell something, I would take a part of that and go into the pub and get plastered with my friends, but the, the rest of it I would use to buy new material. And I've always done that, you know, always kind of put money back into my career. When they kicked me out of school in 1980, I was, I was kind of challenged in the sense that I only showed one of these light objects early on, early on, to my teacher in school. And he said to me, if you want to make those lights, you don't belong here in, in, in sculpture class. You better bugger off to design or something. So I never showed any of them again, but I kept making. And they became much bigger, much more complicated. And I had no studio. I made them in my little student room, you know. <laughs> I would lay on the floor and glue together large panels of plexiglass with chloroform. You know that chloroform is excellent to glue plexiglass. It's incredible. It actually dissolves it and it makes this almost seamless joint. I, I think that's where a lot of brain cells got really damaged from just sniffing that chloroform. But <laughs> mine, mine was cocaine yeah, well, and heroin. So yeah, we all need to sniff something, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're all dogs at heart. Anyway, the funny thing was, so I, I was kicked off. I was at the time in Greece. Actually, I called my mom. I wanted to stay longer in Greece. I called my mom and to ask her if she could wire me some money, which I would pay back at some point in time, right? Like 
kids do to their parents. And that's when she told me, your teacher has been at our shop to tell me that you don't need to go back to school. I said, oh, well, that opens opportunities. Maybe I should stay longer in Greece. I was already working in, in a bar as well. So, I, you know, I, I've always worked on the site doing other jobs, mostly in bars, you know, or preparing lunches or whatever. Anyway, what I did four months after this event with, with the university, I rented the main square in Maastricht in the city, which is right in front of a beautiful old church, 11th century church. And I had the electricity of the streetlights put out, and they would give me electricity for my light objects. So I have this platform. One evening, one night, I got a sponsorship from a, a pub, and they were serving drinks. And I was wearing a tuxedo, and when the lights went off, I kicked my lights on, one after the other. And that was my first official exhibition. Lasted one evening, but I got it into the newspapers. I got also, I got a director of a local museum to kind of sign the letter to the community, you know, to the mayor that I wanted to do this. So that was pretty good. I just went on from there. You know, I would grab every opportunity to show my work. I would exhibit in galleries where maybe in hindsight, you know, you would say, maybe you shouldn't have done that. I still think it's really good to show your work. Show it as much as you can. I mean, really, if there's any students listening to this, get exposure as much as you can. It's really important. We didn't have, at the time, Facebook or Instagram or whatever you're using. You know, we still had to simply really go out there and show our work. It was difficult to get into galleries just as it is now. So any gallery would that would give me a show or, or include me in a group show or anything, I would take the opportunity. Actually, it took 12 years where I kept selling my light objects. And even when I turned to glass, you know, I was, I was selling some of those. Don't get me wrong. I was I was doing pretty good with the light objects. I was uh, showing around Europe, but I couldn't make a living from it. So I was, I was still, you know, bartending as well. But 12 years down the road, so I got kicked out in 1980, 1992. There was a, a CPA who had come to the bar where I worked for lunch, and he was a nice guy. So I said to him, can you be my CPA? And he said, well, we can talk about it. Come and see me, <laughs> which I did. And I, I gave him the books of my sales and expenses in 92. He said, all right, I'll have a look at it. And I called him after a few weeks and I said, so what do you think? Well, he said, don't worry, you don't have to pay any tax. I said, what does that mean? He said, you're under the poverty line, you know. <laughs> but I was living for my work. So I actually quit my job in the bar pretty soon after that. And the year after, I was above the poverty level. And the year after that, I had more than double the income from that first year. So I kept showing and I kept working. And when I really focused on glass, that's really when I actually started to make a living. So my, my light objects 
which I loved making because I did everything myself, all materials, and, and I really enjoyed that. They weren't generating enough money at the time, but when I started doing glass, that was that was actually more successful. Even though the costs were higher, they were easier to sell. I would never have said that 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 like a utilitarian light fixture type of a thing versus a called like a you know a sculptural piece of glass would be easier to sell. Well, you'd be surprised the amount of time that I would spend on building one of my light objects, including thin marble discs and concave mirrors and Corian constructions with steel and rubber and all of that. You know. They were so labor-intensive, and the materials were expensive. But to get, at the time, 2,500 guilders for a light object was actually, in a way, more difficult than getting the same for a piece of glass. So what, what, I guess, was the thing that made you change from light objects to glass? Well... (laughs) As serendipity can hit you in the face, you know, 1986, I'm walking in Maastricht in my hometown. I'm passing Jan van Eyck Academy. Jan van Eyck is a a post-academic institute where you basically are a participant and not a student, but they have studios, they have workshops, and they have tutors from around the world that will be available to discuss your work with. I happened to walk past it and there was a sign outside, glass workshop. And I actually knew the guy who was the doorman there and I walked in and said, hey, what's going on with glass here? And they said, well, walk all the way to the back of the of the hallway and there's a door there. You go outside, you go around the corner and you'll see that they actually build a little glass workshop, and it just started today. They just started working there. Go go over there, which I did. And to make a long story short, I saw a blob of molten glass radiating light at the end of a blowpipe, and I was mesmerized. I spent three weeks, the length of the workshop, from early in the morning when they started till they stopped at the end of the day, and of course, after day five, somebody came over and said, who are you? What are you doing here? As they should. Yeah, as they should. I told my story and I got to meet Andres Kopia. And, and that's a name that is more known in Europe than it is in America. But Andres was the biggest glass designer slash artist in the Netherlands in the 20th century. He was the, the biggest name, the most influential Actually, it's fair to say that almost anybody in the world who is 40 years or older, sooner or later, has been drinking from one of his glasses. You know, So very successful in, in his work. He worked with Lino Pietra. He worked with, oh, what are the names? Gary Beecham in America, Peter Novotny in the Czech Republic. He worked with, with guys in, up in Sweden, in England. Uh, Andres was somebody who early on did what Shihuli was doing later on as well. You know, he, he would travel the world and, and work with people. You know. He himself, and this is really interesting, as a 17-year-old, he went to the Leerdam Glass Factory 
and basically was given the opportunity to design for production glass. And Andres, funny enough, never touched a pipe in his life. And that's very interesting. But he knew glass. He really had an understanding of the material. And I spent a lot of time talking to, talking to him. We became friends. He was already, oh, my goodness, he was already 86 at that time, 86 years old. He's very, very energetic and, and very elegant gentleman and very good in understanding the specific qualities of a maker. So he would watch a maker make, work, blow, and then he would get that gaffer and pick out exactly that what that gaffer was good at. Like if it was somebody who was really comfortable with working very thick in glass, blowing very thick pieces, he was not going to ask him to make something very thin. But for instance, when he worked with Lino, of course, being the master that he is, you know, he would come up with these complicated, very thin designs, and Lino had a ball making them. Actually, he was one of the first people, and, and Lino acknowledged that, he was actually one of the first people to pick Lino out of the factory and say, I want you to work with me creating my designs. So it was very kind of very interesting uh, learning curve. And I was sometimes present at these sessions, and I learned a hell of a lot from it. The next step for me, of course, was to continue making my light objects, but now using that money to be able to learn as much about glass as I could. And I was hands-on, but I also realized that I was 31 when I really seriously started to study glass, and I realized that I had two choices. I could become a student trying to learn glass and hoping that I would one day be as good a glassmaker as Lino, or I could go the path that Andres Kupia took, which is, I have these ideas. I'm going to find people that are able to execute my ideas. And that's basically what I did. Well, that actually was going to be one of my questions because a lot of glass artists, I mean, well, because I already know glass is, you know, it's sort of a team sport anyways, because yes. generally it takes more than one person to do anything in glass. Yeah. But a lot of glass blowers uh, or glass makers, I shouldn't call everybody a blower because yeah. not everybody's a blower, yeah. but so glass workers um, I, I work with other fabricators or other people with other specialties. Cause like you can't necessarily do every single element yourself. Like you were just saying, like some people will blow thick, some people blow yeah. thin, some people are blowers, some people are flame workers, you know, everybody has their sort of different style and techniques. And so like it, it, at this point, I'm sure in your life, you probably have like a crew that does work with you now. So I work mostly on my own. I have an assistant, Swem, who comes, who's an artist himself, but doesn't do glass at all, who comes, or oh, let's say one day every three to four weeks, who I wish he would come more often, to be honest, because I couldn't use him more often. But I have this fantastic collaboration with Michael Beams in Germany, who used to be my assistant, who, of course, has become very successful himself. And then I work with Lohotsky Studio, I work with Hishka, I work with Brichta, 
and I work with one gentleman who only does polishing. And I work with a gentleman, all in the Czech Republic, by the way, and I work with a gentleman who has done smaller pieces for me in the past. So all in all, I'm working with a lot of teams, a lot of different people, and I love the collaboration. I actually so enjoy that they are so knowledgeable. You know, I know how to make a mold, but these guys, some of them, all they do all day long is making molds, day in, day out. I'd be really pretty stupid to try to be better or as good as they are. It's not just that. They work with the guys who fill the mold if I'm not doing it myself, which, which of course, I prefer to do, but it's not always necessary. And uh, they also work with the guys who do the grinding and polishing. So if you do open cast molds and you have a form that needs a lot of grinding and polishing, it's very important that you speak to the grinder when you make the mold and say, hey, how shall we do this? Shall we turn it this way? Shall we turn it that way? What would be most economic and easiest for you? So these teams are phenomenally interesting to work with. And I started in 2001 with Lohotsky, who's still doing most of my work. And we're now 20 years down the line, and I still don't speak Czech, but I can order a few beers. But the communication the non-verbal communication is absolutely magnificent. It's brilliant, you know. There's a, an understanding that goes well beyond words. And they will come up with suggestions. For instance, if I do a big commission in America, I actually fly Zdeniek Lohotsky and, and his, you know, his best man over to America to do the installation because I want their expertise. You know, there's Robert Husek is the second man in command. And Robert is basically a grinder polisher. I mean, that's a lot of my work and he always did. But he's such a technical guy, an inventive guy. He's also, you know, he also makes his own pieces, but not so much, unfortunately. But he's a wonderful guy to work with because he looks at work from a different angle, from a more technical angle. Well, I'm basically looking because I want to create the fucker. You know what I mean? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different approach. And that's so helpful. It's so insightful for me to have these guys and to have this collaboration. Many of my work would never exist if I didn't have these professionals to work with. And that's different from a lot of art forms, for sure. Like, I mean, most, you know, painters and stuff are generally solo artists, but like the glass art seems to be more of a team sport. Well, yeah, but when, you know, you say that, but funny enough, when you go back in history, Peter Paul Rubens, for instance, had a big studio with a hell of a lot of guys, apprentices who would paint on the same painting, but one would do the clouds and other ones would do tissue and the third one would do faces and, and so on. And he would come in and do the, his little magic, but that was completely common. And the same happened with sculpture. And when you look at contemporary guys, Ai Weiwei, uh, uh, Damien Hirst, you name them, they all work with large teams. Henry Moore is another example. Henry Moore would make a sculpture that would be about six inch tall and his guys would then enlarge it to you know whatever he wanted 16 feet tall you know so so that collaboration is not new it's something that always existed it's just in my specific case 
I wouldn't even want it differently, even though I so enjoyed making everything, using every material myself when I was making my light objects. I would not be able to do my own stuff and still travel and still get inspired going to beautiful landscapes and so on, you know, and, and producing as much as I do if I wouldn't work in this way. So for me, this is very good. The, my hesitancy right now is towards having a full-time assistant because I, I so much enjoy being in my little cocoon, just focusing on my work and getting into the flow and just being creative without being disturbed by somebody who knocks on the door and says, hey, we got to ship this piece. Where does this need to go? I forgot, you know. I don't want to do that. It would be so disruptive for me and annoying. And <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to work myself up to the situation where I have an assistant who understands that he can ask all those questions either at the beginning of the day or at the end of the day. But please don't knock on my door unless it is to remind me to have something to eat or to drink. Or understand that you, when you work with me, only ask questions about the piece that you're working on don't start telling me bullshit stories but i tell you what when when michael for instance would come from germany because he would have to drive an hour to come from dusseldorf to me the first hour after he arrived we would drink coffee and talk so we could chat about anything he wanted anything i wanted and then when we would go into the studio we would work talks and discussions were about the work and nothing else and of course, we would have jokes, you know, and fart and all of that. Now, speaking of that, I have a thing. Okay, now I'm not a glass artist, yeah. so I, you know, pardon my stupidity slash ignorance on this. But like, I'm looking at some of your works, and I'm thinking about them. I'm like, okay, the forms and the shapes, they're beautiful, they're elegant, they have all these great things to them. How do you choose what texture and what color to put into what? shape and whatever kind of thing like i mean quite honestly like once you come up with a shape you could do anything to it right, <laughs> so true. it's like how do you know like what's the most elegant or, or most effective even just down to opacity versus the 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 different textures yes. so, you know some of them being like a, a satin finish some of them being high high gloss polished like how do you make those decisions as far as like what's the right one because you know i took sculpture classes and i remember them always nitpicking like the colors of the oh you could have done the, the why didn't you do this color and i'm like and so now i'm horribly anxious about the right choices kind of thing and I, and I wonder how you come up with what you believe to be the right choices it, it, it's funny what you said because when i'm teaching and now by now i've teached in many places in the world always like short workshops or something when i'm teaching i really ask those questions too why did you choose green why is that volume this big while your other volume is that small. How do you, why did you make this composition? Because that's exactly where you learn because you have to kind of check the decisions that you take. In my own case, because I'm a free man, you know, if somebody would say, why are you doing this? I can even choose if I want to explain that or not. I'm going to explain it to you. But the most important thing is my ideas very often just appear. They kind of pop into my mind. So even if they're inspired by a landscape 
or by a topic, and especially by commissions, because commissions can be, you know, I made these two huge bunnies. I don't think I would have made a bunny out of my own willingness. But if somebody who is a dear friend and a great collector calls you in the middle of the night because he forgot that you're in Holland and that you're in a different time zone and says, hey, Peter, can you make a bunny? There's something that goes on. There's something that happens that's such a cool challenge at the time and so hilarious too that it must be my my weird personality, but I can't say no to that. I just start laughing and like, of course I can make a bunny. You know, because, I mean, now we're talking about commissions and I, I briefly want to talk about it because I love to be pushed out of my comfort zone. I love to be pushed out of the box. I, I have a long sordid history with commissions because I, I feel like the people who choose to do commissions, there are different styles of those people. Yeah. Some people, they want to come in and basically they have a vision and you're just a tool to create their thing. Yeah. And then there are people who, who want commissions who they actually appreciate your skill, craftsmanship, artistry, and they want you to sort of come up with something that they, that they could never have even imagined themselves. Unfortunately, I end up running into the first sect too yeah, often. Well, and they, it's horrible. It can be horrible. I, I won't deny that I've had commissions where... The person who gave the commission almost took the joy of creating away from me. But to some extent, I'm also stubborn and egoistic enough to say, no, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it this way. But I wouldn't even say that out loud. I would say, you know what? Allow me to work the way I'd like it. And if you, in the end, are not happy, you don't have to buy it. Only one time, a very, very long time ago, and this was a light object, the person who initially said, I love it, called at the end of the evening and said, I think I'm not liking it this much. I'm not going to have it. And what turned out was that his sister showed up and said, what? What did you pay for that thing? I think it's stupid. You know, it influenced him. That was the only time. And apart from that, all the commissions have had happy endings. So, so far, knock on wood, you know, things have been pretty good. So that's briefly about commissions. I know there are colleagues who just really dislike doing commissions because they don't like to be, <laughs> they don't like to be pushed out of the box. But I love it because it, you know, it can put you in a different direction and it can actually be a huge challenge and give you many sleepless nights. But at the same time, when you've done it and it looks really good, you know, the people are really happy with it. It's, it's an achievement and it's worth the process because you learn from the process. You don't learn from doing the same thing you already know again and again and again. You learn from doing the things that you don't know yet if they will work out or not. And that brings me back to your question. I make my models, as you know, out of ram shape, out of a block of foam about as hard as pine wood. So you can scratch it with your nail, but basically you're working from the outside in. Now, there are two kinds of sculptors. You have the sculptor who works in wax or clay, 
where you can add and take away and add again and move it and put your fist against it and all that. I really like the challenge and the energy and also the attention curve, the energy curve of working in a material where whatever you do basically is irreversible. To me, that is being, first of all, being a lazy person to begin with, and secondly, being easily distracted. For me, that is really wonderful because it's when I get into the work, it's just, you know, it becomes a flow. And once I'm in flow, the work is basically good. Not saying that everything I do is good, but what I mean is that the energy is there, the focus is there, the concentration, and I am heading in the direction where I want to be. Now, the ideas, you ask about the ideas. The ideas often, like I said, they just pop up. They come into my mind. No, specifically, I wanted to know about the ideas of the choices of like colors and finishes. They're all part of, of that flow. They're all part of that attention curve. While I'm working on it, I see or I feel that there is a demand for a structure or that there is a demand for a, a specific color because that color will give it the biggest expression that I'm seeking for or the right expression that I'm seeking for. For instance, if you make something that's very quiet, and very minimal. You may not necessarily want to use a structure unless that structure is the core element of that shape. And for instance, when I did my icebergs, I did icebergs where the wall of structure in the iceberg really is being reflected inside the shape and therefore becomes the dominant factor, if you like, in that shape. Color is a funny thing. There are colors that I don't use or use very rarely that have grown over the years as a possibility. You know, like originally green was a color I wouldn't use. Hmm. But on my travels... It seems like a rather fundamental color. It's a fundamental color. Very interesting. So on my travels, I ended up in Rarotonga, one of the Cook Islands. And Rarotonga is not that big, but it's volcanic or used to be volcanic. So the soil is very, very fertile. And I remember hiking up the mountain on this narrow path. And at some point, literally, I came around the bend. All of a sudden, I'm surrounded by 10,000 shades of green. And I started to weep. And I felt that if there is such a thing as God, this is where he or she or it is showing itself. This is creation at its finest. And I had a similar experience when I was in the Antarctic. There are these moments in your life where you have this aha moment, but it's kind of an enlightenment moment, but at the same time, it's a kind of a mesmerizing moment of kind of, it's almost like you, I wouldn't say, I get out of my body, but it's almost like your body expands. So it's like you become one with that environment. And that oneness is of a very deep emotional and spiritual and intellectual level. It changes you in that moment, and you can't return to who you were before. I don't think those moments 
happen all the time, but they do happen. And if you are conscious enough and you pay attention to them, they can really open doors for you. I did a series of work, which is called the Initiation Series. And I did that because I think life is full of initiations, and some are very small, and some are life-changing, and some are deeply moving and really deeply transforming who you are. But initiations, I would almost say we have very, very often, but often we're not that aware of them, and we don't give them quite the attention that maybe they deserve. Or we just take it for granted, you know? Indeed. So so the choices of colors and the choices of structures and surfaces have to do with the initial idea, the concept to begin with. But for me, they become kind of visual, they become kind of present during the creation. And the creation itself is very intuitive. I've got a quick question though. Like now, are all of your pieces one of a kinds or do you do them in editions or anything like this? I have done a few commissions. I've done a commission for a large company where I had 64 blown pieces, all the same. I've done a commission for uh, Friends of Modern Glass, which is a, you know, a society in the Netherlands. I've done a commission as a fundraiser for a museum. But in general, I do one-offs. Although in the past four or five years, I've made very small editions, like three or four or seven. I will use different glass, sometimes different structured glass, different colors, different finishing. They're still unique, if you like, but they're the same outer shape. In my seven bodies, I really used that because it was so appropriate to the concept and in the installation of the Perception series, I even use different materials and not just glass. I do sometimes use the same shape several times, but I like to make them all different and not make them the same. I understand. I'm just trying to figure out I'm like, your, your sort of your studio style, like, you know, if you work on a single piece or if you work sort of on a single piece that you then plan to reproduce, because that's, that's a whole different sort of aesthetic of of work. Yeah, that that is very true. And I have occasionally take an existing model because I keep my model. So they make the mold, but the model stays, you know, the model is basically the sculpture. All right, then you could choose to do it in glass, or you can choose to do it in stone or in bronze if you want, or stainless. So I have occasionally reshaped a model and, and, and found that a very interesting experience you know, and a very learningful experiment and, and process. One thing that I, I notice in your work too is you've worked both representational as well as abstract. And I always wonder, you know, for lack of a better word, to get into the business side of it, but like, does one sell better than the other? It's funny you ask that because most of my work is abstract. Yeah, I know. It, 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 looked like, it looked like 75% abstract, maybe 25% some representational. I would even go lower than that. But, um, <laughs> but that's okay. But if the, you know what's interesting? Actually, my figurative abstractions, where you can still see there's a body, the inspiration is a physical being, are basically more successful than my abstracts. But they're about 10% if not less, of all my work that I make. 
And, and I think the reason is it doesn't come naturally to me. One of the reasons I didn't finish school because I didn't like making portraits and nudes, making copies of models in clay. I actually hated it. I thought clay, first of all, I don't like clay. I think it's mud. It's just not my material. It is actually mud. It is mud. And you put your thumb in it and it just stays. You know, I actually worked a lot in, in steel. And I love steel because it's a constructive material. And if you want to transform it, you have to be smart about it. And uh, you have to use a lot of pressure. And there's a lot of different techniques to transform it. And But the material will always kind of push back. And I enjoy that. You know, for me, a material that doesn't push back is... It's like snot, you know, the booger. So, you know, you can smear it out, kind of. Okay, it's just not my material. I When I worked in wax, which I did for my melting ice series, I would actually get big blocks of wax, and I used torches and hot air blowers to melt the wax and without touching it with my hands, to create sculptures like ice is created by the sun and by waves, by water and by wind. So that was my approach to that. I didn't do a lot of them. I, I did actually a very, very small number of them. I still love those. I, I actually thought they were very good, but <laughs> there was only a small group of people who thought that they were very good. Well, that begs the question, of course, too, like you have just by looking at your website, which of course I know you have many more because you also have 15 galleries that represent you. So you actually count them? do you store? I did count them. There, <laughs> do you store all this stuff? At, like, do you have like a storage unit or a separate house to like store all of this? I used to have a separate place for them. And since I moved earlier this year, I have this phenomenal workshop that actually has enough space to store the models, which I do one floor up, and to store whatever is left of my blown glass period. So I still have about somewhere between 70 and 80 blown glass pieces, but I made about a 1,000, so I don't think that's bad. <laughs> that's, gr that's great. That's an excellent ratio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm a funny guy. I, I spent my money. I love to travel because it's so inspirational for me. I don't care for an expensive car. I always had very cheap secondhand cars that I would use till they kind of fell apart or I would wreck them, which happened too, you know. You know, the way I work is very expensive. You know, creating these pieces and then having to pay basically everything, I have to wait till I sell them to get my money back and maybe make a little profit it has been a challenge. So I, I think right now I probably have, I would say about maybe a hundred, around 140, 150 pieces out in the world that are in galleries or are in storage. Some of them very big pieces where the investment was huge. And I'm waiting to sell them so I have more money to spend on new work. That is the reality. Like I said earlier, I sometimes go against all odds. When people say, oh, I'm not making anything because I'm not selling because of COVID or whatever, 
I actually made it a lot of work. I think you have to be brave. Don't be stupid, but be brave, be courageous. Create because you want to create. And I am a very firm believer of law of attraction. And law of attraction is a, is a funny thing. To give you a very easy example, if you push against somebody, be prepared to be pushed back. It's simple law of attraction. But if you take it to a higher level, to a more like a wider focus, you know, when you think about law of attraction, if you take the energy and the focus and the money and the courage to create things, there is somebody on the other side, on the receptive side, who will sooner or later meet you and get that sculpture. Actually, I believe that when my work is made, so when it comes back from the Czech Republic or from Germany or wherever it's been produced, there is actually already a collector for it. The only problem is I don't know who it is and probably that person doesn't know it's coming. And to me, it's very, very interesting that some of my best work, what I would consider my best work, sometimes went around the world and took years to finally find that collector that needed to have it. That is a belief. When I said, you know, I trust the universe, that's where this trust comes in where you make something that you really feel you've outdone yourself, you know, and to then have it in a show. And people love it, but nobody pulls their wallet. Nobody puts the red dot. And put it in another show and another show and ship it to China and get it back and ship it to Canada and get it back. And then have it in museum shows and get it back. And then finally, out of blue, somebody shows up you least ex expect it, and the gallery will call you and say, hey, do you still have that blue piece, that big one? Well, I have somebody, and I think we can sell it. You know, that is pretty amazing. It's intriguing to me because it took me a long, long time to find that trust, to not be laying awake at night thinking, oh, my God, I spent so much money making this piece and I've shipped it around the world and nobody wants it, what I'm going to do with it. <laughs> Talking about like the people around the world, one of the things I have wondered about, because again, not a glass artist, so don't know this stuff, but like, is there like regions of the world that sort of are, there are more collectors of glass art than others? Because, you know, like at most mediums sort of have a, you know, a, a region that collects it more and more, or maybe subject matter, I guess, as well, that, that collects more. So, like, do you find that there's more collectors in certain places? I think that America has this incredible amount of art collectors that really like the medium glass and that build these amazing collections, sometimes huge collections, from anywhere up to... 300, 600, 900,000 pieces of different artists, and you know, but still in the same medium, and that set up their own museums, like what Trish Duggan did with the Imagine Museum in St. Petersburg in Florida. There are people like that in Europe too, don't get me wrong. There, there's absolutely large collectors in Europe, in New Zealand. There's one of the best sculpture parks is in New Zealand, you know, which is not so densely populated, but some people just create these phenomenal collections and want to share it with the public. 
But what I find in America, and maybe it's because as big as America is, you know, everybody speaks English or American. That actually makes it easy to connect. And the AECG, many of these collectors of art and glass join and get together and have meetings and make trips together and have a magazine and all of that, you know, that created in America a very wealthy and I would say strong and passionate group of collectors that not only do they visit each other so they know the work that other people collect, they also make sure that they're very well informed. So they have lectures, they have artist visits, studio visits, they travel to Czech Republic, to England, to Japan, to China, to Australia. You know, that that creates an extremely strong market in America that we don't have in Europe. In general, the amount of collectors that go to shows in Germany, but also go to Paris and also go to England and go to Holland and Italy. That's a very small group. There's really not that many people. That makes America currently, I must say currently, because I think these things also swing, you know, because before America, Europe was really the glass nation number one. I I think what's happening in America right now is very strong, but the average age of the collector is also very high. So uh, we know that it's becoming more and more difficult to find new collectors, but we're all very active in doing that. It's a small world and it's a big world. And as far as I myself are concerned, I love to show around the world. You know, I, I get a kick out of being in different cultures and see how they respond differently to my work, how taste is different. It's very interesting, actually. All right. Any last bits, topics that you would like to address or talk about? Want to talk about wine? Unfortunately, I'm not a wine drinker. (laughs) It's just just one of my passions. (laughs) Is it? Yeah. I'm always fascinated by like people's hobbies and, and other sort of interests. And I see that wine often goes with together with art. And the artist lifestyle. Yes. <laughs> and uh, many of the collectors as well, which is great fun. It's great fun. Yes, I cannot speak intellectually about wine at all. Listen, it doesn't matter. That doesn't have to be intellectual at all. It's more about whether you like it or not, you know. I have liked it in my lifetime for sure. I was definitely a port lover at one point. Uh-huh. For, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that that's my my swing of of that. But yeah, no, 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 not really so much. It's one of those hard things. Like, there's just so much of it yes. that I don't even know where to start, and then I don't know how to find something that I like that's not horrible for me, going to give me either a hangover or some sort of other bad reaction. Yeah, but I'm also not a real big drinker either. I I'm, I'm more of a drug addict than I am a drinker. Yeah, and I'm the opposite. My my drug has always been alcohol, and not. You know, I, I've I've tried stuff and didn't do much for me. Funny enough. Yeah, no, my my drug has always been drugs. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. Oh, we all need an addiction. You know, number one addiction. It keeps life interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. number one addiction to me is still making my artwork. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, I quit. Don't get me wrong. I quit uh, hardcore drugs in 1999. So I've been clean, you know, pretty much clean for a very long time. Well, good for you. I, I've not quit my wine and I see little chance in ever quitting it. 
I'll probably take it into my grave. <laughs> well, I still smoke. I still do caffeine. I, I take yes. Xanax. Yes. Like, I mean, I got I got my things. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> anyway, Matt, I see that we've been talking for quite a long time, an hour and a half. Yeah. Thank you again so much for this invitation. I really this enjoyed. Great fun. I really enjoyed talking to you, and I I hope one day we'll meet in in person. I probably will come and meet you in Prague, or if you any come to my direction, don't hesitate if you come to Holland, come and visit. I look forward to it because actually I can get uh, microdosing psilocybin legally there. So yeah, I'm it's all true. about going there. Yes, yes. So maybe if I want to share one last thing. I would like to say a word of encouragement. I will briefly go to one of my favorite topics. When we visit other countries, what do we do? We visit maybe an old temple. We go to see an old temple. Or we go and see a museum and look at pottery. Or, you know, look at Rembrandt in, in Amsterdam or Van Gogh or whatever. Why do we do that? Because art basically is what creates culture. And the level of the development of the arts is what makes cultures important forever. We, we, we will never stop admiring the pyramids. We will never stop admiring Michelangelo, you know, or the temples in Greece. So what I would like to say to the artists and students that are listening, realize that whether you're a ballet dancer or a hip-hop dancer, a musician or an architect or a poet, a writer, a painter or a sculptor, whether you're performing or whether you're making, you are all part of the creation of culture. And I call that your cultural footprint. And this is not without responsibility. Because what you put out into the world, it's your responsibility to make that good enough or important enough or valuable enough that people will consider that an enrichment of their culture. Whether it is provocative or irritating or intellectual or beauty, whatever you choose to be your form of expression or your concept or the story that you want to share, that doesn't matter. It's about the realization that you have a cultural footprint that has your name on it and really should be a realization of why what you do matters. At some point in time, you may actually think about this at some point in time when you really feel low and you feel nobody wants your work, nobody wants to listen to your music or read your poems or whatever, there are other moments that you are successful. And those moments when success doesn't seem to be present, realize that you're already building your cultural footprint and that you don't have to make a masterpiece every time. Just have the courage to go on. All right. Indeed, yes. I mean, one of the things that has come up time and time again is sort of tenacity often can build a career, even if like each individual works or each individual exhibition are not necessarily quote unquote successful. Yes. 
continuing to work is part of the most important part of a good career. This is so true. It's not about talent. It's about perseverance. I really mean that. I know you're laughing because I can see you, but it's really true. I would like it to be a little bit of talent. Well, okay, you need some talent, but I, I remember from art school, these guys that were so talented. Oh, my God. You know, when I was struggling, struggling, they were just in no time, bang. They made, especially with clay, they made these beautiful portraits of figures that were so realistic and they had the character spot on and they had the position spot on and all of that and they're not making art anymore you know what i mean because somewhere down the line they didn't have the courage to continue it's maybe it's a good thing i don't know maybe it is because it's not your calling to have a life as an artist but on the other hand, if you do feel it's your calling, persevere. That's all I want to say. Oh, and have a look at my website, www.peterbramos.com. Thank you. <laughs> and that's all. Thank you for listening to The Complete Conversation. We would appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, or studio mates, anyone with an interest in the arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, the audio was edited by Mickey at Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. As we know, funding for the arts is incredibly important, so I'd like to express my appreciation for the funding from the EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway. They are working together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.